Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine proceeds with a breathtaking pace, a key question is, will Putin's war threaten his hold at home? Many countries, including Canada, have put economic sanctions in place to try to affect Russia during the invasion of Ukraine, but how effective are those sanctions? And according to the UN's latest assessment, many of the impacts of global warming are simply irreversible. Ken Moore, Vice Principal of Research and a Professor of Atmospheric Physics at the U of T, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's about one week old now, the war in Ukraine. And uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, of course, continues to receive plaudits uh, globally for his response to the Russian invasion, and he's really galvanized the nation. Global's Redmond Shannon has some details. President The president is here. We are all here. The words of Vladimir Zelensky on night two of the invasion, cutting through rumors that he had fled with a simple selfie video from the streets of Kyiv. As Russian forces approached, the U.S. offered him support to escape. Zelensky reportedly rejected it with these now famous words, I need ammunition, not a ride. History is full of leaders who run when the odds are against them. Zelensky's videos have instead reassured and inspired his people as Ukrainians dig in and defy the Russian army. Every citizen is president, he says, and a warrior, his leadership and courage earning respect around the world. He is the embodiment of the courage of Ukrainian people. It was only three years ago Zelensky was a TV president, playing for laughs as a teacher who accidentally becomes leader. Ukrainians who were fed up with his pro-Russian predecessor and with corruption voted him in for real. A multi-talented comedian and actor with a law degree from a Russian-speaking Jewish family. He won Ukraine's Dancing with the Stars and even voiced the Ukrainian version of Paddington. It's interesting that the Paddington bear is fighting a big bear. Ukrainian political analyst Orisia Lusevich says Zelensky has made mistakes, but his conviction is what matters now. At the time of existential threat like Ukraine is facing today, they're all, all united across all languages, political parties, communities. You have absolute cohesion. Zelensky says the enemy has marked him as number one target, but he has refused to yield and rallied global support in the process. The funny man who's proving to be nobody's fool. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. So we know more and more about uh, President Zelensky, of course, and and his brave uh, leadership that we've seen over the last week. Uh, But as this drags on, and and I'm sure there were some people in in Russia that didn't think it was going to last this long, uh, there are some questions about Putin and his leadership and, and, well, the people behind him, uh, and even, of course, the the strategy that's being employed. Uh, To bring us uh, up to date on that, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Amy Knight. Amy is an author of numerous pieces on Russian politics and history. Uh, she is, uh, her latest book is called Orders to Kill, the Putin Regime and Political Murder. Uh, there's an op-ed piece in uh, the Globe and Mail today uh, that is a must-read to try to get some uh, context as to what's going on. And she joins us right now to talk about that. Uh, Amy Knight, welcome to the program. It's uh, great to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. The reputation for Vladimir Putin, of course, is, is a, a bloodthirsty, well, some people call him gangster. I mean, there are a number of different descriptors here. But we're starting to notice a different kind of Putin uh, that doesn't seem to be as strong, that doesn't seem 
to have uh, the the hearts and minds of the people, maybe even his his closest advisors behind him. But talk to us a little bit about uh, the, the op-ed piece that you wrote today, Amy, and 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 your perspective on this. Well, I I've just uh, suggested, you know, we we assume that uh, of course uh, Putin has has lost the confidence of Western leaders. He's been disgraced. He's a pariah. Um, that's a given. The real, uh, the really important focus also should be on what people think of Putin at home, because at the end of the day, if he's going to respond to Western pressure, it's going to have to come through his his own people. And so I I speculate that um, there are some some signs that actually his own uh, team, his own foreign policy and security team are are reluctant um, about this this current invasion. And I, I think um, I think it's because they are more realistic than Mr. Putin. And they, of course, uh, are, are now witnessing the the severe consequences for Russia. And um, my my uh, view is that Putin, yes, is increasingly isolated. You've seen him sitting at those tables, twenty feet apart from people. Um, he's he's kind of holed up in his his bunker, so to speak. And I think that even his closest advisors are not getting through to him. Yeah, there was a, almost a symbolism to that picture. I think we've all seen it. Him, him, as you say, sitting about twenty feet away from everybody else, and that's not social distancing. That just seems to be his his mindset these days. Right, right. And and you know, um, there was there was some talk. I mentioned this uh, really important um, National Security Council meeting where where you know it was televised, which was kind of strange because normally they're held you know um, in, in secret. Anyway, um, I, I, I said in my piece today in the Globe that clearly Putin had hauled all of his advisors up, uh, including the Minister of Defense, the Prime Minister, the head of the uh, Foreign Intelligence, and Sergei Lavrov. He wanted them to publicly endorse his decision to move into Ukraine. And boy, oh boy, I mean, you could, I could watch the whole video. And um, it, it's, it was pretty revealing to me from what the men said and what their body language was, that they are not happy campers. But as you point out in the piece, and I, I watched that too after, I was shocked as you were that it was even televised. Uh, but it, it, the body language spoke one thing, but these are people, as you as you articulated in your piece in the Globe, that are still, they, these are hawks. I mean, these are not people that have, have decided, you know, well, you know, maybe the, the Western world's got it right. I mean, you know, they're very adamant in, in their beliefs. They just don't like his strategy, and I don't think they like his leadership at this stage. And you could tell that by some of the, the comments they were making, and more importantly, by some of the reactions Putin had to their comments. Well, I, yes, Absolutely. But, you know, I also question um, whether all of them really are as anti-Western as they say they are. I mean, I, I think um, I, I, I believe Putin, who I think is is almost completely deluded, is definitely paranoid about the West. And he's been going on and on for years about NATO and how they're going to undermine his whole country. And so... But uh, if you take somebody like Sergei Lavrov, 
he lived in the United States. He was uh, uh, the uh, Russia's representative to the UN. And his daughter was was basically raised here and went to university here in the U.S. Now, and and Lavrov uh, was on a yacht uh, trip last summer off the coast of Turkey. He he doesn't think the West is evil and dangerous as as he says when you hear him speak. I mean, Lavrov spouts off the same um, really belligerent language as Putin. But I wonder whether he really believes it. And um, but that's in a way that's beside the point. The real question is, are these men who are around Putin capable of getting together and persuading him that he's got to stop? Um, this is something that is maybe uh, everybody's dream. But I, you know, for the first time after after seeing their reactions, um, I've begun to wonder if maybe that is a one possibility. Well, is it is it a feasible concept, though? I mean, so as you mentioned in some of your past writings, I mean, those who speak out against him, I mean, we know what Putin does to political enemies. You've, you've outlined that pretty clearly in some of your past writings. Uh, the poisonings and, and people just plain disappear or they're, they're off in prison for God knows how long. Uh, and even when these people at the, around the table there at that meeting, Amy, started to, to voice some concerns about the strategy. Uh, and and Putin pushed back on them hard. They they just cowered like like little kittens, and because I guess they're afraid. I don't want to get this guy mad at me. I mean, you know, there there is no free speech around that table. That seemed pretty apparent. Well, this is true. And incidentally, when Putin went on on Sunday to uh, announce that he was putting nuclear Russia's nuclear forces on high alert, I mean, that was really really extreme. That hasn't really happened. Um, we have to think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, and he did it again on on a televised announcement with his Minister of Defense and the Chief of the General Staff sitting there. Again, um, the Minister of Defense Shoigu looked so uncomfortable. And and you're right. Well, what you know, one might ask, what can he possibly do? But this is what I'm talking about. I think. One real problem, and, and other people have pointed this out, is I, Putin and, and his advisors, unhappy as they as they are, uh, intended for the Russian military to go in and, and pretty much take over Ukraine with some surgical strikes. What is happening now is that they are killing more and more and more uh, Ukrainian civilians and Russian soldiers. This change the, changes the whole landscape. And I think that there might be a point, and again, I, I'm probably too optimistic, that some of Putin's more rational generals and more rational foreign policy team are going to just go to him and say, it's got to stop. But, uh, but, but, but you know, I... I Unfortunately, I, uh, I don't have privy to what's actually going on within the Kremlin. But when there are regime changes, and we are, yeah, they have elections in Russia, so to speak, and I, I put that in quotation marks, elections. Uh, but regime changes seem to happen uh, behind the curtain, as it were, Amy. Uh, you know, in the 60s, there was Khrushchev, and then all of a sudden, Khrushchev fought out of his favor, and all of a sudden, it was Brezhnev and Kosygin uh, were running the country. And, uh, and you know, there have been other things, Gorbachev, and then all of a sudden, it was Yeltsin. And then, yeah, you just, these are changes that seem to occur, uh, not through any electoral process, but because the people that are pulling the strings of power simply said, uh, you're out. 
Uh, is there a possibility that the oligarchs and, and those that really hold the power in Russia right now are getting a little tired of, of Putin's act? Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, we've watched the uh, oligarchs jump ship like crazy in the past couple of days. It's absolutely mind-boggling to see people like Oleg Deripaska and the director, one of the directors of Alpha Bank, who who are Putin, you know, strong supporters, to see them start, you know, saying the war is a bad idea is significant. Now, these men don't have the power that the so-called Siloviki, the uh, the strong men, uh, the men who control the military and the security services and the police, um, these are the men who, if something could could be done to stop Putin, um, I, I would assume they would be the ones that would, uh, you know, do it or carry this message to to Mr. Putin. I um, again, it, it, of course, one individual uh, uh, protester among Putin's henchmen obviously couldn't do this, but I'm just wondering if if it will get to the point. Um, considering now the literally disastrous consequences just for Russia. Um, that it, you know, it could get to the point where some sort of collective action on the part of Putin's Kremlin team um, might happen. Well, and world opinion is there, and, and even if it doesn't seem to matter to Putin, at least that's what he says publicly, it does to others. I mean, you know, Mr. Lavrov that you just referred to tried to make a speech at the, the UN. People walked out on him before he even started to talk. Uh, and we've seen the, the condemnation that's happening on a global basis here. But if if there is even a group like that, though, Amy, and if they figure, okay, we got to stand in unison here, or, you know, however many of them are, is Putin the guy to deliver that message? I mean, this guy is is the you know the poster boy for machismo and and you know macho behavior and you know the bare shirts and you know the hockey teams you know he goes and scores nineteen goals in a game and things like that it would be an absolute failure for him to stand down and say, okay, okay, we're worth drawing troops. Uh, this was a bad idea. I, I don't know if he has that in his DNA to even do that. I don't think he really does, but I think uh, if other people around him refuse to go along anymore, then he might be forced to make uh, some sort. And he might be forced just to simply step down as president if this gets mm -hmm. as disastrous as it's looking uh you know in the direction that it's going i think putin could be forced to leave power uh prematurely i think this uh invasion could be his downfall politically and, and that may be the intermediate step between you know a ceasefire or whatever it might happen here is that this is not the guy anymore so and and, and again I'm sure those discussions are ongoing, and I don't want our listeners to get the impression this is imminent, although it might be. You just don't know because we don't really have a whole lot of background or information about what goes on behind those closed doors, do we? No, and I, I wouldn't suggest that it's imminent either. Um, I think people are uh, the, the uh, elite uh, that surrounds Putin, these, these men, and they're largely men, <clears throat> are, are you know get, becoming increasingly aware of what a disaster this is. But of course, all of this takes time for them to, you know, if they were able to decide, you know, on some sort of a strategy. So I'm not suggesting that that, um, you know, it would happen right away. But I think it's it's definitely something that's, you know, that's in the cards. And, you know, to save face, Putin could just say uh, they could just say he was sick mm -hmm. and 
which, you know, they used to do that in, in uh, Soviet days and he could kind of crawl away. Um, so I, I think, of course, this is totally against his personality. But remember, you know, Putin has been acting very different from the old Putin lately. Yeah. And it's not only all this business of isolating himself, allegedly because of coronavirus. You know, he doesn't use the Internet. I mean, this man is uh, is a very strange, weird uh, person. And I think it's very unfortunate that the Russians have him as their leader. Well, yeah, he seemed most comfortable in the 20th century, not so much uh, in, in current times. And that, that could be a factor, too. Uh, I, I, again, I direct our listeners to to the piece in the Globe and Mail today. It's, it's well written and I think offers some great insight as to what could be going on there and what is happening. Amy, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. Amy Knight, who is an author of numerous pieces on Russian politics and history. And uh, as I say, her uh, latest book, uh, I think, puts this in the proper context for us. Check out the article on the Globe and Mail, though. It's still on the uh, their online page. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, we know that, uh, especially with the rather ominous pictures we've seen in the last 24 hours of this huge uh, convoy of Russian tanks and artillery, they, they say it's about so it's 60 kilometers long. That, that's the convoy. We're concerned about the military action. And, and again, there are calls, well, you know, is NATO going to get involved militarily? Well, apparently they've reiterated, no, they are not, not in Ukraine anyway. Uh, but uh, the world leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, of course, have uh, leaned heavily on sanctions uh, to try to, to send their, their message, I guess, and to try to apply pressure. Uh, Prime Minister spoke about this uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. Uh, and said this unnecessary war has to stop now. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, talked about Russia's unprovoked attack on Ukraine, and he promised that with more allies banding together, Russia will feel the consequences. Here's Tina Trujani with Global News has all the details. Canada is one of the top producers of oil worldwide, and although we don't rely heavily on Russia's oil exports, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced a ban on the country's oil, saying revenues have helped to prop up Russian President Vladimir Putin. Trudeau says the measure sends a powerful message. According to Stats Canada, roughly $300 million worth of energy products came from Russia last year. Other countries are more reliant on Russian oil and appear reluctant to cut it off due to fears of the impact on their own energy prices. Trudeau announcing further sanctions as well. Canadian financial institutions are barred from any transactions with the Russian Central Bank. And we are prohibiting any direct or indirect dealings in Russian sovereign debt. Tina Trajani, Global News. So what are the impacts? Uh, you know, we have to put this in context about, first of all, uh, the amount of trade between Russia and Canada, and more importantly, the impact it's going to have. I mean, if the stated reason for sanctions is to try to bring Russia to their knees economically, is this going to be an effective way of doing it? To talk about this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Robert Hewish, uh, Associate Professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about about impact. And you know, we know we've heard from President Biden and, and Boris Johnson and, and Justin Trudeau and so many others talking about these uh, very strict sanctions that, that they're putting on economic sanctions, uh, especially uh, when the latest one, of course, being on oil. Uh, but I get the sense, though, as, as you wrote about in a great piece in the conversation that uh, was published a couple of days ago, uh, that, that Russia's put some defense mechanisms in place already. I don't know if it was anticipation of this or they just to, to try to buffer themselves from these sorts of things. Are these going to be effective and are they going to have the sting that, that, that our other Western leaders are suggesting that it might? 
Yeah. So the, great points, Bill. And it's a it's a tricky pie to sort of start digging into. But the the short answer is no, not to the extent that Western leaders are saying. And the reason for that is that with sanctions, the the the, the purpose of them is to try to put pressure on a government or a people to then take opposition with that leader. So that's that's how these are kind of designed and they're specifically going for a lot of financial hurt within Russia. So we're, 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 people are gonna be hurting uh, right on the dinner table with this one. Uh, when the price of oil goes up, uh, other things go up with it as well. And so really the, the tactic that's being looked at here is to put pressure on the Russian, the Russian economy and the Russian people to then essentially reject the the leadership style of, of Vladimir Putin. So that's the first uh, issue with him. Now, the second is, is that, as you said, Vladimir Putin has seen this coming since 2013 and has taken steps to create workarounds. Uh, one of the things I've always said with sanctions is they're like a glass hammer. They, they look really impressive. And then when you put them to work, they tend to shatter. Now, that said, the, the initial sanctions that were put against uh, Russia in the early days of the conflict were pretty, pretty weak and flimsy. Uh, there was a couple banks that were, that were targeted. Uh, there were five ships, and then there were three, three people. And those three people were already under sanctions. But since then, within the course of a week, it's scaled up to the point where there's now, uh, you know, the, the SWIFT system is in, in question. The trading between banks and uh, outside of Russia and in Russia are now up for it. And I think British Petroleum uh, just recently said that they're they're going to appeal for aid from the British government to pull their assets uh, essentially out of Russia. But why does this, why does it sound scarier than it really is? Well, the, the first part is, is that between 2013 and 2020, Russia has been actively reducing the amount of dollars in its foreign debt uh, from uh, to 24% from what was 40%. So that means that in the Russian economy, they had purchased U.S. Treasury bills uh, uh, from the from the State Department or from the, you know, the, the Treasury Department, I should say, uh, as, as a form of financing. And the number of those have gone down. Uh, Russia used to own about $100 billion of U.S. Treasury debt. Uh, as of 2020, it held only $10 billion. And as of today, it was about 2.5 billion. So by comparison, the country of Colombia holds $33 billion of US debt. And the other thing is that there's fewer US dollars circulating around the Russian economy. Uh, in 2013, when Russia was dealing with China, it would do so mostly in US dollars, today less than half. And the partnerships that Russia has with India are almost all done in rubles or in some cases in rupees. So there's no US dollars impacted there. And the last thing I'll just say on this is that the, the the closing the door on the banks with Russian banks and North American banks, yes, that's going to happen. But on March 17th, like you, you've got 30 days to complete your transactions in that time and, and get your assets sorted. So there's always a back door. There's always a slippery way around sanctions. And uh, that's what we're going to see Mr. Putin start to, to navigate. It's putting the hurt on now, but he'll have a response. Yeah, the 30-day window, I, I thought was outlandish, really, when I read your piece. Uh, it's like saying, we're coming to get you, bad guy. Just stay right there. We'll be there in three weeks. Uh, exactly. You know, of course, and as you said, it gives them time to shift money around. But it sounds, uh, to a greater extent, though, Robert, as if they already have. And right. it, 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 it sort of validates the theory, I guess, a lot of people had, that this move with Ukraine is really part of a large, much larger plan for Putin to take over all of the this territories that used to be part of the old uh, USSR. Uh, you know, when he, as you mentioned, uh, it's 
not coincidental, I guess, that a lot of this movement that he started to do about moving money around was after Crimea. And he thought, okay, this is only step one. I better prepare step two and step three. And that seems to be what's happened here. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the latest thing that I think has given him the the confidence to to, to try to survive this is now knowing that uh, we, you know you've been hearing in the news about the SWIFT system, the the the, yeah. the way of transferring funds between banks. Uh, well, there's other systems that uh, that can help out there, and the one is the CIBS, which is the the Chinese system. So Russian banks can still get money in and out of the country for foreign exchange through China. It, it won't be as much; it'll be limited, uh, but it's still possible. And there are other workarounds as well, especially with cryptocurrencies. Now. Having looked at this in the past with other countries like Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea about the impacts of sanctions, there's always a workaround and there's always an ability to, to survive these things. What it does is it creates a lot more expense and a lot more uh, trouble for the public, for the populations. Uh, costs of everything go up, there's suddenly supply shortages. That will be what we'll, we'll see happen in Russia. And in, in many ways, um, you know, I think Mr. Putin is is got his his lifeline there through through these networks, but what we haven't seen as a firm commitment yet from the international community is to really go after the personal wealth of Mr. Putin and his top lieutenants and deputies. Uh, why why is they they've talked about it, but what that really means is digging into offshore capital. Mr. Putin doesn't have you know assets sitting in uh, Scotiabank right now and nor does he have them in Wells Fargo, but he does have them in, in, in Caribbean nations like the British Virgin Islands and other uh, offshore uh, havens uh, around the world that we know about. And if governments were to start to put pressure on those areas and get sanctions regimes in place there, then I would say that his top people would start feeling the pain and be like, well, where's my nest egg? Uh, we went on with your crazy behavior thinking that we were going to be vindicated and paid for it. But if that money turns off, then you're going to see people in his own court starting to turn on him. Is it true? I just saw one report last night that suggested that uh, the freezing of government assets actually could have an impact because that was the nest egg he was wanting to fight this war with, and he's not going to have access to some of that. But on the other hand, when you see a, you know, a 60 kilometer long convoy coming up there, they're not going to dry up anytime soon. But the, right. the personal assets, I think, is something that's fascinating because it was never really clearly explained to us. Uh, when they made that, you know, the announcement of, hey, we're, we're playing hardball with this guy. But it's only a certain number of banks, as you mentioned, that are even going to be involved in this. Right. Uh, and if he's got money in, in other places, I mean, what have we always heard? You know, if you want to hide money, if you're a rich guy, I don't think either one of us are. You got money in the Cayman Islands. You got money in a Swiss bank account. You don't have it in a checking account in downtown Moscow. Uh, no, you, no, you so, don't. So, and you know, how can you even reach that money? Well, that's the thing. The, the places like Switzerland um, have been have been profiting off of basically hiding money and assets, you know, since World War II, if not before. And uh, that's that's old hat. Caymans are one. Uh, Bermuda's another. Uh, but the British Virgin Islands is something that uh, I would hope the international community focuses on a bit more closely. Uh, within, like, there's even shell games within Russian banking right now to try to avoid these sanctions. So there's a Spira Bank and then a VTB are the two largest ones where the attention of these sanctions is on. And the reason is, is because of the little foreign currency in U.S. dollars that's in the country, most of it's in those two banks. Uh, what no one's talking about is the uh, Pramsavia Bank, which is which was set up as a shell away from Sperbank in order to keep trading military hardware with India. 
that bank's going to be completely immune from sanctions. But in terms of the British Virgin Islands, uh, this is something I've been working on, uh, you know, with broader projects and, and talking to some of the journalists who were involved with the Pandora Papers, and then uh, even some work I've been doing with the UN uh, Special Rapporteur on sanctions and humanitarian impact. One of the things we found is that there are some of his top lieutenants that were that were named in some of Mr. Biden's sanctions, like Vladimir Kirienko. Uh, was basically put quite a bit of money uh, through a shell company called uh, it was Morningstar Finance and then uh, Domestar Enterprises, but it all comes back down to a company called uh, I believe it's it's VK Inc. and that's based uh, in British Virgin Islands. Sorry, Titanium VC Limited, which is based in the Virgin Islands. Uh, along with about another dozen uh, folks in Russian government and even some people in the Ukrainian parliament who've all got these shell companies registered at one building in Roadtown in Tortilla, British Virgin Islands. Um, British Virgin Islands is still part of, of, you know, has to abide by UK uh, regulation to some extent. Uh, I, I don't see why we can't start moving on these foreign properties to really turn the taps off because uh, British Virgin Islands is currently not under sanctions, even though the Russian wealth is there. And uh, what what are we going to do about that? That money can still move around. It will, and it will find a way. Well, and and to that point, I mean, Boris Johnson seems to be one of the more hawkish uh, m- members of NATO uh, that wants to really do something about that. Maybe because a lot of the uh, nefarious activity from Russian agents is happening right in his backyard. Uh, you know, that's where they're getting poisoned uh, too often. Uh, so you'd think he'd be like that, but then why not swing the hammer at the British Virgin Islands and say, you got to play ball with us here too? Right. Well, I think the, the, the quickest way to do it will be to say, okay, the SWIFT sanctions, that's going to apply to the BVI. Maybe it's going to apply to some other other uh, areas around the world too, where we know these these assets are. The problem is, is that a lot of global elite put their money in the very same spot. So this one building, uh, which is at 3175 Roadtown Tortilla, third floor, by the way, that has some uh, 30, 30 registered uh, shell companies there from Russia, there's a lot more there as well. Some involving U.S. assets, possibly European. Um, I really haven't dug into it to figure out who's all located at that address. But rest assured, there's also some pretty powerful actors outside of Russia who would feel the hurt if these sanctions were, were to involve this offshore capital. And I believe that's the big reason why it's been avoided, because nobody wants to draw attention to that particular issue. Is that one of the subtexts that, that we're not really discussing, maybe to the degree that we should, is yeah. that you know the, the, the global outrage here is, is impressive to see all these countries, including Switzerland, by the way, that have condemned this action. But yep. when it comes to, okay, now we're going to punish these guys, uh, they're saying, yeah, great idea, just as long as it doesn't impact me, okay? <laughs> and, and they're not saying that overtly, but I mean, as you mentioned, there's a number of probably very wealthy people that are a little nervous about this. So, hey, don't shine the light on there because that's where I am too. Uh, and, and rather, shall we say, tepid response from places like India, e- even Israel, places like that, that are saying, yeah, this is wrong, uh, but we're not going to kick him in the shins because, you know, we've got a business interest there too. You, you got it. And the, the attention right now is looking at the, the, the land-based military aggression into Ukraine. Um, you know, and we could talk about the strategy of that, of missiles and, and artillery and where's the fuel, where's the food, where's the, the fuel reserves that they, the Russian military need to get access to in order to keep the campaign going. But ultimately, wars are funded by very wealthy people uh, in every single one in history. And as we then you know, sit back and think, who really profited from war? We will find out. And, and right now, the amount of 
wealth that uh, that Putin's people have in overseas assets is is in the tens of billions. So this is not chump change. And in, in as you said there, the the more that the attention gets drawn on this, the more it's likely to to destabilize uh, other other politics in 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 the EU and especially in North America. Um, you know, but the, but at the same time, it's it's almost a perfect opportunity. The way that Mr. Putin has sort of farmed out his capital in Russia is that on paper he's actually quite poor. If you look at his Russian assets, it's very very little. But what he's done is essentially farmed it out to his top people, his deputies, his loyal circle. They manage it, they get pieces of it, and then they sort of hold it in these offshore companies. And uh, the, the way I'm thinking, it's just like the Ides of March, as uh, you know, Julius Caesar, that uh, it's possible to to end the tyranny with the Senate sort of goes against you. And if his own people no longer have trust or security, that would be a big pinch. But what it's going to do is if sanctions are going to be effective in this way, they are going to expose a lot of the operations of how uh, shady some of our, our top elite in the world move their money around. And it's something that uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman uh, said just the same, that the real power of sanctions won't just be on the target themselves. It's going to involve a lot of economic hurt within the global elite. I, I think this, it's a fair statement to say that uh, Putin and probably his, his advisors uh, were shocked by the, the the global outrage. That I don't think they expected, first of all, Ukraine to fight back the way they did or everybody else to rally behind them. But from an economic standpoint and from a sanction standpoint, is, is it also fair to say that uh, we're not throwing anything at them that he didn't think was coming and is already prepared for? You know, the, yes, you know, and, and again, it, they seem really, really hard when you, when you, when you see the politicians rise up and say, here are the sanctions and it's, you know, we see the ruble plummeting and, and, it, and it will, it'll, it'll, it'll rock and roll for a little bit. But when you get to the, to the details of those sanctions, so when, when Mr. Biden was, was heavy handed earlier in the week, one of the things that he left as a back door was energy. Energy was not mm-hmm. immediately sanctioned. Uh, for fear of, of you know price spikes here, and now we're seeing the energy companies start to pull out because you know there's there's discussions about how to to get supply increase in other parts of the world to compensate for this. So I think he certainly saw it coming, but the one thing that he didn't see was that uh, Western democracies being as united as they are around this. There's been a lot of a, a lot of campaigns to try to destabilize and try to to, to shake up. Uh, democracies from Europe to North America, all the way to Australia and New Zealand. And I think he was counting on more division within those economic clubs of Western democracies to to not take such a harsh stance. And, uh, and, the, and the reason for that calculation on his side is he knows that harsh sanctions on Russia will eventually translate into economic impacts in other parts of, of the global economy. So we're all going to feel the costs go up for this, and and I, I don't think that he figured that sanctions would escalate to the point that they are, uh, which they are doing, and and that's um, that's something that's that I think he's going to rely on his backdoors, his cryptocurrencies, his ties with China and India to move money around now, which maybe he didn't think he had to do. The uh, essay is called Why Russia is Mostly Protected from Sanctions. You can find it on theconversation.com. Robert, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Bill. Great to talk to you. Take care now. Dr. Robert Hirsch from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Can't take our eye off the ball on some of the other issues that are facing us. And, uh, and causing, uh, well, a great deal of consternation about our future. And one of those, of course, is, is climate and climate change. Uh, 
And uh, a new report, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on uh, Climate Change uh, has issued the report. Uh, Shirley Harper is the lead author on that. Author rather on that. Uh, the report actually has some rather ominous uh, concerns right now. Uh, it was on health effects of climate change and disease, nutrition, and mental health. Here's a quick report. If you are, you know, in British Columbia and you're experiencing flooding and you have to be evacuated from your home, or if you're in a wildfire zone or driving through it, um, that's associated with increased um, cases of PTSD and, and stress um, and, and depression and anxiety um, from directly experiencing that. Uh, interesting twist on this. Uh, I want to dig down a little deeper into this and, and talk about the message uh, that's in this report. And to do that, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Kent Moore, who is a vice principal of research and a professor of atmospheric physics at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. It's my pleasure. It's interesting about this. I was just, as we were listening to the clip there just a couple of seconds ago from uh, Sherry Lee Harper, We've had other reports uh, that, that have issued some pretty dire warnings about uh, the long-term impact. And, and anytime they've seemed to delve into health, it was, well, it's about air quality and, and respiratory problems and things of this nature. This is the first time that I can recall uh, that they take it to the next step and look at some of these calamities that climate change is causing are going to cause mental health issues, which is it really exacerbates an already existing problem, doesn't it? Well, it does for sure. And I think it's an interesting, uh, you know, I think, you know, we're getting, you know, we're learning more and more about the impacts of climate change. And I think a lot of the focus has been sort of on direct impacts. But these things, these health conditions, especially when you get into mental health issues related to, you know, to the stress of, you know, dealing with climate change. Uh, you know, I can see that in my own work. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stress in the kind of research that I do. And even, frankly, just the stress of anticipating things uh, we have a place in Nova Scotia where we spend some time and in the winter, it's the power is quite unstable because of, you know, winds and ice storms and stuff. And it's really quite stressful if, you know, a storm's coming and you potentially will lose power for maybe a day, maybe two days. So there is a lot of kind of stress built into this just uncertainty related to climate. And as the risks of climate change become you know, greater, I think there'll be more and more kind of stresses that are associated with it. Well, and some of the, for instance, climactic you know, events of this, like you say, wildfires, flooding, things of this nature, start to manifest themselves. And God knows last year was just terrible. Of course, we saw a little bit of everything, or a lot of everything, I guess, unfortunately. Of course, there's going to be a mental health aspect to this, too. I mean, if, you're, if your town burns down, uh, it's going to have an impact on you mentally. I mean, if your house gets flooded out or your cottage gets flooded out, and we saw that happen in so many different areas. Those are long-term actions. We talk about, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress dis disorder, and uh, that's starting to, to seep its way into this conversation, which is probably a good thing, at least, to be including that in the conversation. I think, you know, climate change impacts every aspect of our life. I mean, I don't think we really understand that. And I think it's, it's, it's just, it, it just makes sense that, you know, if you've been flooded out once, right, you know, the, the fear of the next one, it will weigh on you, right? Because you never really know. I mean, it's like, you know, people have lived through an earthquake. I mean, you know, we think of the ground as being solid. And when it starts to move, it just kind of, you know, there's, that's one of your kind of basis points is just gone. And so I think, you know, um, you know, people could, you know, perhaps let's say in the Fraser River Valley could have, you know, gone to sleep kind of knowing that, well, you know, things will be okay, even if it's a heavy rain. But now they've experienced a really intense, you know, rainstorm that led to catastrophic impacts. And so when the next atmospheric river comes, sure, people need you know, the anxiety and the unknowing and just not knowing what's going to happen, right? We've removed, you know, one of these sort of, again, foundational things. We thought that our 
that our house was, was, was safe and now it isn't safe and it might flood out next time. Maybe you were lucky last time. And so, yeah, I, I think we're going to see more and more of these kinds of, you know, unanticipated consequences of climate change because, you know, frankly, it is, a, you know, I, I think it's so, you know, it's hard maybe to give people a sense of how catastrophic things will be getting. And mental health is, is one issue where I think we're going to see a lot of challenges dealing with just the stress of knowing that, the next atmosphere river might be the one that floods out your place. The uh, first line of the overview that I read here, uh, many of the impacts of global warming are now simply irreversible, according to uh, to this study. Uh, that's a, a rather ominous way to, to, to begin a, a report or an overview of this. Uh, but they do say that, look, at, there is hope here. In other words, uh, there seem to, still seems to be a suggestion here, uh, Professor, that, uh, that it's still within our grasp to do something about it if we're going to be dedicated to it. I think, you know, so this report is, you know, so the first the report that came out last year from the IPCC was on the science, right? What is the science of global warming? This one is on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. So here, you know, they're dealing not with so much the physical science, but just so what, what are the impacts of this? And, you know, the window is closing, uh, you know, because, you know, we've now reached one degree. People think that one and a half is sort of the cutoff where there are going to be catastrophic changes. So, you know, the future is still ours to decide. We can make a decision whether or not it's going to be one or two or three or whatever. Um, but again, you know, we don't have too many, you know, we have about two decades, frankly, before we reach 1.5. And uh, one of the things in the, in the report, I think this language we're seeing as climate scientists, is that the rate of sort of change is, 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 is more rapid than we anticipated. And that also means then that, you know, uh, we don't have that much time to, uh, to adapt if, if, if adaptation is, is, our, is our way forward. And again, it's not going to be, you know, we have to be more creative. You do, we just can't keep, you know, building, let's say, the dikes higher and higher because we know that there's always going to be weaknesses in those dikes and there's always going to be breaches. So we have to, I think, be more creative as to how we sort of adapt to climate change. And that may mean that we have to abandon, you know, places and floodplains and turn them into parks and things and move people out of those regions. And that's a really dramatic change. And again, it takes time to do that. And, and the real issue is we don't have, we only have a two, two decades to get the warming under control. And that also means we only have a couple of decades to get our adaptation strategies under control. And the report says we have to be much more sort of proactive and creative in the way we try to adapt to climate change. One of the other authors of this, uh, Dr. Helen Adams uh, opines it's really, really clear in this report, she says that uh, things are bad, but actually the future depends on us, not the climate. In other words, we still have control here, as you've just mentioned. Uh, it's going to take a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication and some tough decisions to be made. Uh, but we can we can put the brakes on this. Uh, it, it, you know, when we say uh, some of these things are irreversible, that's that's you know, that's pretty scary. Uh, but there's still some things within our control here. Uh, is is that message resonating now with the with not just our, our political leaders, but with each and every one of us that we all have to buy into this? That's a good question. I think, uh, you know, I don't think the pandemic has probably helped because it's taken people's eyes off of, you know, it's a short yeah. term. It's a clearly catastrophic short-term issue, but we're going to get out of this at some point in time. And, you know, we've CO2 levels have kept on going up, right, through the through the years of it. And and, and so I, I think I think there is, you know, I think some weariness to all this doom and gloom. Uh, but I think this, you know, I think more more and more people I think are are feeling the impacts. They're seeing it. You know, they have friends in BC or 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 they live in BC. 
and they've seen the impacts of you know these catastrophic you know wildfires or floods or heat waves and so i think more people are getting the message but but again i think uh there's a sense i think of despair maybe we can't do anything and and i think we still can do something you know i think you know i i have a lot of faith in human ingenuity and i really do think that we will crack this nut it's just the question of will we get it done before the you know changes become so catastrophic and that's sort of my concern is i have a lot of lot, a lot of hope both in individual every everyone doing something but also just in you know in society developing technologies that are, uh, either allow us to adapt or it actually reverse because i think eventually we'll be able to pull carbon out of the atmosphere um, but it's probably three decades away from that technology being widely av- available and unfortunately in three decades you know we're going to be above 1.5. So I think it's a bit of a race and I think we have to do every molecule of CO2 that we keep out of the atmosphere is one molecule that's not warming the planet up and so I think people can still do things and and I really think that that we need to sort of both pressure policymakers frankly to to really be uh you know to follow through on their commitments and also as, as individuals we need to take these you know these these small steps reduce your use of you know your your internal combustion engine vehicle if you're in Ontario about electric vehicles because of course most of our electricity comes from clean sources and so it's not actually uh it doesn't actually provide more co2 uh, and and just kind of keep keep understanding that we still have you know there's still an, a, a window for us t- to do something and i think we have to keep that hope in mind that that we can in fact reverse this because it is up to us you know the future is not preordained um but if we do continue using carbon the way that we have then in fact we we, we do know what the future is going to be but that doesn't have to be the the future that we actually see because we can make these changes to that point though there are still deniers we know that uh that just say this is no big deal you know there we've always had floods we've always had wildfires that happens that's a, uh, I, I don't know if you're going to convince them or bring them to the to table i mean but we need to concentrate on those that still think hey yeah maybe we are partly to blame or maybe we are totally to blame for this and, and make sure that message gets across it and, and maybe we're making some baby steps here are we professor i mean five years ago i, I wouldn't have bet you a, a dollar to a donut that you know the provincial government here in ontario for instance uh was going to be headlong into electric electric vehicles but they seem to be now uh i don't know if they've had a you know conversion on the road to damascus or something but the all of a sudden they, they seem to see what's going on and they didn't five years ago other governments following in the same way uh, so, and, and that's a good thing. It's not going to be the one thing that's going to change everything, but it's a, it's a, an important step, isn't it? I think it is. And I think, you know, one thing that the, that the pandemic has taught us is that, you know, there's 15% of the population that just are not going to believe science. And I think we just have to move on from that 15% and focus on the 85% that kind of understand, you know, that vaccines, you know, are a benefit to you or climate change is, is, is real. So I don't think, and I think there's always going to be a, you know, some, deniers out there but we have to move on and i think you know as we saw with the truckers and as we see with russia i think when people start seeing the economic impacts then it really starts to make sense and i think that's probably where you know even the you know the the, the tories in in ontario see that yeah there's a financial you know downside to to this uh, regardless of whether you believe you know climate change or not there, there's definitely evidence and banks are moving this way you know the world banks moving this way the big banks in canada all have kind of climate change you know 
departments now they're trying to deal with the risks and the uncertainty and i think so when people see it hitting their pocketbooks then yeah they understand that it's actually real it's not just a bunch of you know um, you know people in sandals you know whatever protesting there really is a financial impact and so i think that's where we're seeing this movement is people understand now that yeah there, there really is an impact if we don't do anything you know flooding in ontario is going to become more severe uh, and that hits the that hits constituents you know, and people may lose their houses uh, and that really is. So I think they've all understood they have to move on this. And it's kind of too bad, it, you know, the science has said, as I said before, has been fixed for 50 years, right? But unfortunately, it's taken us some, some time to get the politicians there. But I think, you know, we're all, even the Tories are kind of moving, understanding this. And so I think that'll help once we get all the, you know, the, the governments on side, making, you know, they're making electric vehicles more, more of an option, then that'll help, you know, drive our CO2 emissions down. Well, and, and those commitments, I think, are very important. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, again, to go back, you know, five, ten years ago, I guess, even, uh, you know, the automakers were some of the biggest opponents of this whole thing. Like, come on, that's our lifeblood here, guys. Now they're the ones that are really driving the, the, this whole project right now. They're the ones that are investing the money uh, into these EVs, which is great. And, and I guess governments... <laughs> I, 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 it's the cynical side of me, I guess, Professor. I mean, governments are usually the last ones to come on board because, you know, they kind of stick their finger up in the air to see where public opinion is. But since that seems to be shifting, uh, government priorities seem to be shifting to EVs. Uh, there was just a huge announcement uh, in Hamilton a couple of weeks ago with ArcelorMittal DeFasco and the Ontario government uh, where they're basically taking the coal production out of uh, steel production altogether. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, clean steel, which is uh, unusual for the so, southern Ontario. But it, it's it's government and, and business coming together on that. And I think those are the kind of collaborations we'll need, aren't we? For sure. And I think that that announcement was actually a, a wonderful one where, you know, they are going to go to, you know, to, to cleaner steel production. And that's a large source of CO2, frankly, you know, in, in Ontario. So yeah. I think it's wonderful. And there are financial you know benefits to that. And I think people see that now. And I think, uh, you know, that's the kind of optimism that I think I feel is that I sense, that, you know, governments are on side. You know, there's opportunities. I think one thing is that people tend to look backwards, sometimes also for climate change, but there's opportunities, right? There's clean energy. There's all kinds of new technologies. And if Ontario can get on the, you know, get on the bus, so to speak, then there's opportunities for growth, right? And for new jobs that are, you know, that are in clean industries. And I think, you know, sure, there's going to be dis dislocations and sure, there's going to be some you know, some people who will unfortunately, you know, perhaps, you know, lose, lose their, uh, you know, their livelihood if they're a coal miner or whatever, but there's opportunities, to, you know, to retrain those people and also just to move forward to this huge economy. And, you know, if we're going to go green, there's opportunities. And I think governments have to understand that, you know, sure, there's legacy industries that need to be protected and legacy em employees, but there's huge opportunities, you know, that need to be exploited so that we can provide new jobs for you know for our people that are in industries that aren't you know damaging the environment exactly we'll have to leave it there for now uh time being our enemy here uh, always uh, great to have you on the show professor to get your perspective on this thanks so much for the time today thanks bill and you and you have a great day bye now you too take care professor kent moore from the university of toronto the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.